<laughs> exactly. You go to find solution to your challenges. You show up at the show and you're like, yeah, but that's not going to fit. That's not going to solve yeah. it. I think many manufacturers should have gone into being a lawyer, but manufacturing was a better fit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, Jason, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word setups? You're not making chips <laughs> yeah, and you're right. not making money. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the biggest battles that can hold you back as a manufacturer. Absolutely. So enter the Lean Setup Guide from ProShop. Okay, what's that? This guide can help anyone, whether you're a ProShop user or not, but ProShop users have experienced a 50% reduction in setup time because the software builds these lean principles into their process. Yeah, so it's a totally free download. You can go to ProShopERP.com slash 50 and you can get your copy of the Lean Setup Guide. Bam. I'm not a good fit for automation because we just don't have the volume. Today, we're going to kill that thought. Talent is scarce. Experience, even more so. Driving up costs and sleepless nights. You may even think to yourself, can I do this? But this new era brings new technology and a different perspective on your operations. What you will hear will turn on a light bulb in your mind so you can turn out the lights in your shop. Get ready to sleep soundly while your shop never stops. Get ready for Making Chips Lights Out with your hosts, Nick Golner and Jason Zanger. Okay, so we're going to jump right into the show today by introducing my guest because I'm here alone. I don't have Jason with me, my co-host. So I'm solo hosting this episode of Lights Out, but I am not completely alone. I have two wonderful guests and I'll just get right into it. So our first guest is a former mechanic, a marine veteran, a machinist, and a prototyping shop business owner named CAD Models. That's the name of the business, K-A-D Models. He's also a high school manufacturing teacher at RTTC, Randolph Technical Career Center. Welcome to the show, Brian Kippen. Thank you so much for the introduction. I think you nailed it. Yeah, uh, heck yeah, man. After that, I don't think there's much for me to say. <laughs> I think there will be. He's got a great yeah, story. Yeah, this episode's over. Good job. And our second guest <laughs> has an extensive background in machine design, technical sales, automation. He's currently part of the Golden Rink family as our Eastern Regional Sales Director. Welcome to the show, Steve Degrassi. Yeah! Yeah! Yeah, there he is. There he is. So before we get into it, we're all here working at East Tech right now. We're all working except for Brian, who's here attending. And he is working that sweater. He's working the he's sweater. He's working that sweater. I wish you could see it, but this is audio only right now. It's a nice sweater. He's looking fresh. It looks really comfortable. I feel like I want to give you a Came from a DC thrift store. So Really? I'm sweating because he's of the sweater. He's very huggable right now. No, he's a huggable guy even without the sweter. Yeah, yeah, You put that sure. sweater on him. But speaking of sweaters, they cover your shoulders. And I got a chip on my shoulder, man. Oh. I got a chip on my shoulder. Are you tired of putting out fires? Is the coolant starting to go bad? Are your cutting tools edgy, or is that just how you're feeling? Chances are, we've been there too. So, we have to ask, what's the chip on your shoulder? So, the chip on my shoulder, being at trade shows, it's easy for me to sneak in coffee. I can sneak in coffee, run my own little espresso machine in this conference room that's doubling as a studio, but it's really hard to get like alcohol served at your booth. 
It's kind of like a big deal. You got to hire like the official bartender people. It's like $9 a beer just to serve it to people. Yeah. It's like the old prohibition days. Yeah. It's like, geez, man, can't we just have a beer? Yeah. 2023. <laughs> what you don't realize is those Nespresso pods, yeah. I filled them all with vodka. Oh, okay. So you're welcome. <laughs> so this will be a good, oh, this will be a good episode. That's why people are floating around our booth. Like, <laughs> yeah. But what about you, Steve? Anything that uh, gives you a chip on your shoulder as it relates to trade shows? One of them, I'll just give you one. When you set up trade shows and everybody who does this a little bit, a lot of bit for a living, and you come here before the trade show starts, yep. there's no markings where to go. And you ask the people, like, this one's at a fairground. Yeah, so yeah. there's like 12 buildings. There's a horse stable. And like, I'm peeking in every building like, oh, which one's ours? Where do I park? And there's no one that can help you. I asked the security guy, he gives me a bracelet, idea where to point me. <laughs> yeah. He just gives me a bracelet, says, all right, oh, here, buddy. Especially this one, because you're right, like East Tech's very segmented in all these different buildings. There's a big farming show, like a county fair type thing called the Big E that they do here. And it's, <laughs> apparently it's awesome, but they do a really good job when all is said and done putting together yeah, a machine. It's magic. Show. It's magic. But yeah, when you first arrive, when you, you first have no arrive. idea where you're yeah. going. Brian, do you ever exhibit at trade shows? Probably not, right? Never exhibited, but what I find is always comical is the people who are looking for solutions and arguing the problems that they have do not fit the solutions that they're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, exactly. You go to find solution to your challenges. You show up at the show and you're like, yeah, but that's not going to fit. That's not going to solve yeah. it. I think many manufacturers should have gone into being a lawyer, but manufacturing was a better fit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So talking about like what you go into, okay, I want to start with your origin story. We always do it when we bring in a guest with a story like yours. So take us back to the beginning. Not when you were born. We could fast forward through some of those gory details. But when you started in this industry, like how did it all come to be? So for me, I was a kid who liked building stuff okay. and taking things apart. Let's start with that. I took things apart. But once I figured out that building stuff was also entertaining, mm -hmm. that's what I really liked doing. But I didn't know about manufacturing. There's just something, I grew up in rural Vermont, didn't really understand manufacturing, didn't even know the concepts. Like you go to the store, you buy something, it's done. You can yeah. take it apart, you can modify it, but that's kind of how things went. And when I got to the San Francisco Bay Area, population far greater than rural Vermont, <laughs> I was introduced to somebody that my parents had talked about when I was a kid who was a model maker. He did industrial models for consumer electronics and things like that. And he had a small machine shop in his living room, CNC mill, things like that. And In his living room. In his living room. You hear about it in the garage, but not yeah. the living room. Second floor of a house, living room. Wow. No I keep kitchen. a 3D printer in my bathroom. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a great place. For That's one of the, I aspire to be like that. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things that got me, there's a picture of me when I was, 20 years old, sitting in front of this milling machine that's just moving three axis by itself. And I looked like a zombie. At that point, it was like, I have to do this. Really? So it was like love at first sight for you? It was love at first sight. But then the next question is, who's going to hire me? <laughs> yeah. And you were like seven. <laughs> so wait, you were a Marine. How did you go from, I like taking things apart, like then into the Marines? How did that? Well, when I was in Vermont, I was a mechanic. And I moved to the West Coast because I wanted to do something else. And I got to the West Coast and I got a job doing what I knew how to do, which was being a mechanic. And I was like, I know how to solve this. I'm going to do something that I don't know how to do. Oh, let's join the military. It's automatic. <laughs> like, joining the military gets rid of all the questions of, can you do it? It's like, no, you have to do it. Unfortunately, due to breaking a couple feet, I was discharged early. 
And then I had to go back to the Bay Area and figure out what I actually wanted to do. So How'd you break your feet? During the casualty evacuation exercise, I was carrying somebody who outweighed me by at least 100 pounds. Oh, wow. San Diego rocks. Like I was 130 pounds at six feet tall. So small guy. And you said big feet, guy. both feet. Both feet. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Did you just like fall? And- no, I was stepping on rocks. Really? Yeah. Wow. And so you finished and both of your feet were broken. Correct. Wow. So I ended up staying in the military, working in a substance abuse control office until I was healthy enough to be discharged. I was no longer fit for duty. So substance abuse control office in the military, what's that job like? As somebody who's kind of fresh out of boot camp, you're administering B-tests. So you're walking down a line and handing out cups. Yeah. Not much to it. <laughs> you know, a P-test is already daunting, but to do a P-test with broken feet, I mean... To a bunch of Marines. To a bunch of Marines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, even that's more. the most unpleasant thing You can do that. You can today. do anything. Exactly. So that's how I segued into manufacturing. I was like, if I can do this... <laughs> <laughs> I can do anything. Okay. Okay. So seriously, so you get out of the military and yeah. then what's the next step? So the next step is my mom, who's been a big fan and somebody who's helped me with a lot of things and just... She knew that she couldn't tell me what to do, but she could make strong suggestions and introductions. She made an introduction to a gentleman who owned this company called Performance Structures. And for those of you in Chicago, you know the Bean was built in Oakland by Performance Structures, and then all the components were shipped. And I ended up starting to work at that company when we were doing the final models for the donors for the Bean. No way. So there I am with these miniature beans, TIG welding. I learned how to TIG weld. And... Meanwhile, in the background is this huge five-axis jobs mill running large plates of steel. Wow. And I had seen this little tiny three-axis mill inside of somebody's living room. And I was like, then I saw that. And that is like a kid with a Tonka truck who goes to a construction site. Yeah, yeah. How do I do that? That is so cool. So for those of you that don't know, the Bean, I think the official name is called like Cloudgate. Yeah. And it's this big, shiny, like mirror reflection sculpture that everyone takes pictures in front of in Chicago. It's really famous. So you actually worked on that. Yeah. It's like a chrome plated Mr. Potato Head. It's 316 stainless. (laughs) There's no chrome in it. Really? No chrome? Yeah. It's all 316 stainless welded uh, frames, 168 panels. And they just polished the heck out of it because it's got like a great finish on it. Yeah, polished, welded. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. Awesome. Okay, so now you've seen this huge, massive five-axis mill. You're falling in love even more. Now you're off the deep end. Yeah, I'm off the deep end. But in order to get access to that, the guys who were running that piece of equipment, they were programming it, were up on a second floor. I would walk up there and during breaks and ask them like what they were doing and pestering them and found out that they needed somebody to run the mill after hours. And here I was like, okay, I can do that. I've got a day job where I was working in a small prototype shop, but I was really interested in like five axis, multi-faceted machining, complex stuff. So there I am, I'm working from nine to three and then from four until I dropped, which is usually about midnight or 2 a.m. So as many hours as you could put in while you were still conscious, they would accept. Exactly. So I would run in the jobs, five axis. We had two different Sandvik mills that we would hot swap, take another pass. So the plates that we were machining at that point were 12 feet long. And one, or it would take about five passes before you had a set of inserts that were dull. Wow. They didn't take very long before. I was like, this is cool. But watching this mill go back and forth, switching inserts every eight minutes, I started rolling pennies while I was riding the machine. You needed more to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I decided to drop the two jobs and get a job at a prototype manufacturing company in the Silicon Valley. 
So I quickly climbed from just being a machinist that was hired to director of operations because I really like talking to people. I like solving problems. Managing is pretty easy when you're nice to people. <laughs> At that point, I was 26. Being a manager of people who are twice your age is a little difficult until they yeah, realize I know the feeling. You're not there as a... Brian, your story is awesome, but I can't stop laughing because the overhead announcer voice, you talk yeah. about chip on your shoulder, wah, 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 yeah, like make yeah, sure you put your thing. Hopefully the editors can get that out, but we're here at a trade show. This isn't the, the official ambiance. making chips studio, so... Yeah, okay. no silence. Silence is not golden. You yeah. should be making chips in front of a machine, spitting chips. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so where were we? Where were we? So we were at the point where I became director of operations yeah. at a prototype company. And you said, just be nice to people. It makes it a lot easier. And at that point, I realized that I was essentially running a company and I wanted to try it on my own. Yeah. And that was in 2012. No, it was 2011, late 2010, 2011. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. Prototyping is what I really like to do. The shop I was working at not only did prototype, it did production, silicone molding, urethane casting, things like that. I found out that it'd be a lot of fun if I could try it, do it. I had this idea that a lot of the reason why companies didn't get into prototyping is because of the way that they approached it. Yes. They approached it from the same way that people have been teaching machining, which is start with the biggest tool and go from there every single time. So what's your biggest tool? That's tool number one. And my realization was like, that's wrong. So... Pause right there, because we're going to dive into that too. But Steve, as a former machine designer, you're always probably a machine designer at heart. When you hear a young man who's got, oh my gosh, look at what that machine can do, and he's just mesmerized by it, it has to be inspiring as someone who designed machines just like that. No, it really is. It's how I got into wanting to design things. I remember when I was young, going to either trade shows and seeing, when I first got into packaging, I actually went to PMMI up in Chicago and to see Is these, that a trade show then? Yeah, it's yeah. a trade show for the packaging industry and seeing these machines that would like quickly mold and spit out aspirin bottles and like erect boxes and stuff stuff in them and put the boxes on other boxes and then wrap them. You're like, oh, I want to work on that. I want to yeah. do that. And so it's really cool. And later in life, you don't sometimes don't think about it because you do these things in a vacuum. You design the machine, you design how it's branded, how it looks, how it operates, what it can do. But you kind of forget that there's someone that's going to see that machine and it's going to inspire them to do something. Yeah, with it. So that's yeah. kind of really cool to hear. Especially Especially on the bigger stuff, I think you use the analogy like I had a Tonka truck and then I saw a construction site and saw the real thing. Steve, give us an idea the the scale, the scope of some of the big machines that you've designed before. Yeah, some of the bigger machines that I've been involved with have travels of 30 feet, 40 feet. They have a working envelope maybe of 24 by 12 by 8 feet tall. We did a couple wood routers that were just tremendously large that could basically machine an entire boat that's what it wanted to wow. do wow. so yeah and it's interesting because sometimes the size does not always correspond to the amount of money you think you would get for it so you've got to be really creative to do things with it yeah you have to know what the job is and you have to know what the performance requirements are going to be and you have to prioritize which one of those are the most important all those things that's all part of that process and so one of the things he said that was kind of interesting is that most people that are good at any sort of design work, no matter what it is, you could be in marketing and designing catalogs, you could be designing the iPhone, you could be designing anything. Whenever you're able to approach the problem a different way with a different perspective and not just assume 
that everybody's done it that way forever. It's that person that takes the risk and looks at it in a different manner. That's the, usually the ones that has that breakthrough. Yeah. And that's kind of what's cool about. Yeah. You know, so let's get back to that because you do everything differently. You're not worried about like the way that it's supposed to be. And that's evident. At, if you spend a half hour with Brian, he does not try to like fit into anybody's mold. Before you even spend time with him, you drive up and it's like this red barn with these garage doors that you're like, are we sure we're in the right place? You loop into the parking lot, then you loop back out. It, surely it's not. Yeah. And then you go down the road a little bit and then you come back and you know, this is where it's taking us. Let's knock on the door. And then you get greeted by wolfhound is that what that thing yeah. is oh moose. yeah it's like moose. oh it's that dog beautiful. i totally fell in love with that oh dog. it's the most friendly thing but when you first look at it you're like that could eat me and my family yeah and, describe like, the size of your dog man so moose's back is at 35 inches so the standard kitchen countertop so he's the sous chef <laughs> he's, he's he spends 95 percent of his time going between nap and nap yeah but when you approach the front door of my building there's a glass window that's half glass half metal and he's looking through this glass that's at 42 inches and you realize that he's not on his hind legs yeah, yeah, he, yeah exactly. he's actually just standing just normal like a normal dog and then he's so lovable that he'll kind of jump up on you and he'll put his paws on your shoulders and be towering above yeah, you yeah seven foot four when he's on his hind legs seven four no, that is bigger than any nba player right now. you know what's crazy too is like He's so friendly, and then he'll want to play with you, and then he grabs one of the toys, and his toys are like the size of a toddler. Yeah. So then he brings them over to you and hands them to you, and then your like, arms about fall out of their sockets because it's so heavy. You're <laughs> yeah. like, what dog actually plays with this toy? But I think your overall point is you drive up to this place that does not look from the outside like some extremely high-end, fully automated prototyping shop. Right. And then you walk in, and you meet Brian, and you're like... Wow, this dude is different. It is efficient. It's amazing, honestly. So yeah, go so. back to where you were before. We were like, hey, everyone starts with the biggest tool. Like, Let's elaborate on that. I think one of the key components is I wasn't ever trained how to be a machinist. So I didn't come into the industry with the knowledge and the background of how our education in manufacturing is. So you're usually taught how to grind a tool. If you can grind a tool that's sharp, you can put it against material and remove the material. I was just shown this technology that took a piece of useless material and turned it into something that was useful. And the way that it was happening was however said person decided to. So the thing about machining is the rule is you need a precise component or a component at the end of the day. How you get there, every single shop owner, machinist, programmer is going to tell you a different way to get there. Sure. At the end of the day, it's got to be to print, to spec, whatever. Yeah. And that's the thing. But what people would get fixated on is like the process of like tool one is their largest tool. Tool two is the second largest tool. And the reason for that is the education says on a bridge port, you're going to start with the big tool and you're going to put that in and you're going to make a cut. And then you're going to go to the next bigger tool because that's how you're set up. Yeah. Hog first, finish, then flex pass for surface finish, you know, all that stuff. Right. And that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing about doing that is it keeps the system going. The problem with that is as you introduce more technology, you can rip material a lot faster with a carbide end mill than you could with high-speed steel that your grandparents or your parents or even today's educators still use. And now you're using this toolpath that can take a half-inch end mill and remove material faster. You'd reduce the tool size, you reduce the carbide cost, things like that. So I approached it from a like goal-oriented person. So there's process-oriented, goal-oriented. I need that part and I need it done quickly. And I decided 
I want to build a company that does that. So I love that. So you're distinguishing between being goal-oriented and process-oriented. Right. And so a goal-oriented person says, I need X amount of parts that are within tolerance by the end of the day. And a process-oriented, they tend to think through exactly how they're going to get through that every single step of the way before they take the first actual physical step. For me, I start taking steps. For the most part, I've had enough experience to think through but I still start taking steps first. So, and that goes into the prototyping, the utilizing automation in a prototype shop. I think of it in a very different way. Not, it has to be 100% complete. It's like, what can the machines do for me? It's kind of interesting because it's really kind of the difference between an industrial engineer and a Kaizen engineer. Like when Toyota production system was developed, it's kind of like, don't fall in love with the process, how to make the machine faster. Find out what the end product you have to have and then eliminate all the waste to get there. Because one of the worst things you can do in any factory, in any machine shop is automate a bad process. Automating chaos. Yeah. Automating chaos leads to a lot of chaos faster. Exactly. You're just amplifying your problem. You're creating a lot of scrap. So back to like how you approach automation differently. And obviously this is an episode of making chips lights out. People need to take something away. So your perspective on automation. When I tell people one of our favorite examples as a Trinity user is Brian Kippen, who has an average lot size of five. That goes against the whole like, I don't have enough volume for automation thing. So how do you implement automation in your shop? So you start thinking about variables. And those variables for the standard manufacturing shop floor, the variables is the part, right? So the part is always variable. And how you approach that variable is usually determined by the tooling. So what if you switch where your variables lay? What if you just leave it at the part? You standardize tooling, you standardize work holding, you standardize machining, you standardize process. And that eliminates a lot of the waste that you end up thinking that you're creating when you're doing a prototype. So if you standardize, if you're always tool eight is always X number tool or X diameter tool, no matter what, and you leave it there, then it's the burden is on your machine programmer to say, this tool is always that. It eliminates the necessity of having an operator or a setup person constantly rip the tools out of your machine and start over. And then other variables like work coordinate offsets, Commonly, because of the bridge board, again, we set our Z at the top of our stock. It's not necessary. Your stock is always going to vary in height. What if you put that in a known location? You start putting known locations in your offsets, then eliminate a lot of the work that's being done elsewhere. Yeah, I want to make sure we don't gloss over this because this is one of the coolest insights I've ever had in a machine shop is when I visited is... You can go into and ask any programmer of his, or you can ask Brian, what is tool 24? It doesn't matter what machine it's on or anything. It's always going to, I'm going to make it up, quarter inch drill bit. It's always going to be that. And so the saying in total production system is without a standard, there can be no improvement. And so when he standardized on offsets, on tooling, all that sort of stuff, it's like, now you can say, man, our programs can be consistent. We don't make as many mistakes. Like it's amazing how big of an influence that is. I mean, like on his shop. So standardize everything that's not the variable that's inherently different every time it's a new part. That's everything else you standardize. Yeah. Right. There are times when you will have an instance where you need a four inch reach on a half inch end mill and that can be a variable, but that's not one of your standard tools. You have your standard tools that are going to work for 80% of the time and you vary things after that. And the key to that is trying to figure out how to make the programmer vary their situation. So with multi-axis manufacturing, you don't need four inches of stick out on a four inch tall part. You can now rotate that part to 90 degrees and use a stubby tool. 
And the thing about utilizing But you're automation, not trained that way because you're trained... Yeah, most people are not. That's right. Without multi-axis. So, like, people don't evolve as much as they could because they have to start at ground level one, and then they build these paradigms and these mental frameworks that they have a hard time breaking out of. Would that be safe to say that's what you're saying? Absolutely safe to say. One of the non-chips about going to a trade show is you get to see the things that you don't know. And like you said, if you're in a vacuum, everything sucks. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the best. That is a great, yeah. You gotta put that on That shirt. is great. <laughs> or like a vacuum work holding oh, solution. Yeah, that's what we need. <laughs> so one of the things that is cool about how he's saying that with the programmer is the programmer takes their projects cradle to grave, which is another kind of insightful thing about it's a little different where normally you have a department that is programming. Normally you have a department that yes. is set up. Yeah. Normally you have a I'm department that is, on that, Steve. Yeah, and they're the ones who touch the button. But now what he's done is because that he's made the actual part the challenge, the programmer has to then figure out how to rotate at 90 degrees and use that standard tool. So when we visited you, you said you run your company like a barbershop. And I want you to talk for the next few minutes about like your philosophy on attracting, retaining, developing your employees, because they're all very multifaceted. So one of the things that I realized is the job that I wanted to do when I became a machinist, it wasn't the guy who's operating, pushing the button. I wanted to be able to have my hands in it. I wanted to be able to solve my own problems. I wanted to do that. So this talent that I hire is a talent that could potentially become my competition. But I see that as asset. Because if I take and I hire somebody who wants to be that person and I give them the abilities and I give them the skills and the training and the opportunity, then I have what I consider a barbershop. You might not get the same haircut from each individual, but you're going to get a haircut and it's going to be right. Or at least it's going to be passable, but as far as barbers go. <laughs> so I hear you. So that goes back to kind of like being goal-oriented instead of every single person's going to follow the exact same process. There is some standardization that we talked about, right? Like your tool standards are going to be the same, but you don't necessarily like sign off in exactly how they programmed a part. No, I mean, oftentimes what I found in, is given my path into manufacturing is attempting something in a non-standard fashion either leads to epic failure, but oftentimes, and more often than not, you've trained somebody to become a machinist or a programmer. They're not going to do a catastrophic failure, but they may approach something differently than you would, especially with more experience. You see something fail enough times, you automatically think that's going to lead to failure. You're not going to try that again, yeah. But when you give somebody the opportunity to possibly fail, sometimes you're impressed. You're often impressed by what somebody can do because they're thinking about it differently. And if you cultivate that and have that as a shared experience through your employees, you develop a huge difference in your workforce and people want to stick around a company that allows you to free think. So yeah, you're using robots, right? You're automating, you're standardizing where you need to, but you're not making your employees robots that do the exact functions in the exact order that you set out. You're leaving room for their own creativity and for them to kind of concept how this final part that's in spec comes to be there. Right. And I oftentimes use the Versatel or ATM as what the robotic cells do for manufacturing, right? Because if you're a small manufacturer, you've got, say, 10 individuals working for you and a single shift. In order to double production, you either split that shift or you hire more people. And with the talent pipeline as an issue and with people wanting to move up and higher pay scales, if you add automation, an ATM, 
and you utilize it properly, you can then double your size. CAD used to be just in California. Now I'm on both coasts with 15 individuals working for the company. And we can do that because we're utilizing technology for what it's best at and humans and what they want to do. When you're saying ATM, what do you mean there? So if you have a bank and you have yeah. five tellers, yeah. during the day without an ATM, they're giving out $20 bills. Sure. Okay. You yeah. add an ATM, they can now focus on maybe giving you a loan. And that's more revenue for the bank and it's less time. Now I see where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I love about what you're saying is there's also like the psychological cost and just traditionally we've always said, you know what, we got to get more production done. Let's do five on this shift, five on the next shift. But then you got to pay a shift differential. And then the second shift, who knows what they're doing sometimes because you got to then hire a supervisor for the night. But there's this whole like psychological advantage. Like when you're around your guys, they're like all working side by side on their computers, going back out to the floor. It's kind of that sort of that Wall Street excitement yes. where you get this like synergy. It's like when you're working a booth or doing anything and you're with other people that are doing the same thing, you kind of get this sort of energy about right. it. So yeah. you probably get all these untold savings and advantages. Well, you know, my brother Noah is the president of Panic, one of our companies, and he's a lean, continuous improvement guy. And obviously it's about maximizing the amount of value that flows to the customer and minimizing the waste in the process. And he always talks about like the biggest form of waste is unused employee creativity. And so you talked about like the psychological cost of like when everything is so rigid and you're kind of like, hey, we don't need you to do a lot of thinking. We need you to follow this exact process exactly this way. There's a psychological cost to that because like maybe they come at it from a different angle and you're like, you know what? That's actually better than the way I would have done it. We can use that to create an improved standard somewhere else, right? Yeah, I think about whenever you volunteered for something and they say, yeah, we just want you to change out the trash bags. That's it. Versus if you're given a product, how much more you put into it. Yeah, totally. When they trust that you might be able to do something more than just... When they're goal-oriented with the volunteer, right? So they're right. like, hey, your job is to make sure that like this is the cleanest area of whatever you're doing, right? And then not just do this one thing, but you can accomplish that goal however you want. Exactly. Yeah. And that's being able to harness and harbor that creativity and utilize that for both the employee's benefit and the company's benefit actually leads to a really good work environment. Yeah. Starting in April this year, I decided that we should take every Wednesday afternoon and create something. So every single employee comes up with ideas and we put it on a whiteboard and there's no bad idea. There's ideas that I think are questionable, but <laughs> you're allowed to take your the Wednesday afternoon and produce something with the company time. And if that turns into a product that goes back into the company, the employees' pockets. It's kind of an incentive to utilize your time and your abilities to create something better. Oh, that's so cool. And it leads to like a whole bunch of things. Yeah, there's a ton of side talk conversation. We're not constantly producing things, but the company's getting stronger. The relationships with employees are getting better. And there's a lot of joke. That's a really stupid idea. So I don't have to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah so I love it. Yeah, exactly. I actually have a question because Making Chips has done a really good job several times talking about this. You talked about like kind of how you approach managing your people and the type of people you're looking for. What's actually the logistics behind how you find them? Is it Do you really focus on word of mouth? Yeah, you go to the man, schools. Yeah. Everybody out there is struggling with this issue. Yeah, like what are you looking for? What's your profile and how do you attract how the do you profile? Attract them? How do you get them? So my profile is problem solving and mechanical aptitude. So background is typically not of any consequence. There's no reason for me to go after somebody who's been a machinist. Actually, I've never hired anybody who's been like who's at the level that they are. Since starting the Vermont facility, I've hired two people who have worked in machine shops. 
but usually they worked into a machine shop. They're in production, they're on the production floor, and that's not where they want to be. So they, but every single one of those people has a mechanical aptitude and a problem solving skill set. And that's what I look for. It's like if you approach something from that, the rest of it's trainable. There are soft skills, you need to show up, things like that. But the main things are the mechanical aptitude and the know how. How do you gauge problem solving? skill set. Is that like in the interview process? Or? Oftentimes, it's about asking standard questions like, on your free time, what do you do? If somebody plays PlayStation, if they do gaming, chances are that they can visualize 3D in virtual reality. If somebody says, well, I work on a farm, I fix tractors, I do this, I have a race car, I have a mountain bike. It's all about what they're doing with their free time and what it is that they enjoy. So if somebody enjoys building, destroying, gaming, things like that, chances are that they're going to be pretty good in the manufacturing. See, I could hear a lot of people interviewing, like, what do you do in your free time? Well, I really focus on this video game. Uh, He's out. He's not going to be good as a machinist. It sounds like... Whereas Brian's like, oh... Yeah, you do Minecraft? Yeah, come over here, Yeah, right. Roblox? Like, that's just programming anyway, right? Minecraft uses the Cartesian coordinate system. See? Every one of those things is X, Y location. They're teaching machinists. They don't even know it. This is exactly how you approach... You look at it from a different angle. And it's interesting because traditionally, we put a ad for a machinist. You need 10 years previous, this kind of machining. Oh, we want a grinder. How long have you run a grinder in your life? This is kind of like on its head, really. Yeah, really. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you is like just how you're coming at it from a different angle. And so you bring these folks in, right? And they check those two boxes, mechanical aptitude, problem solving mindset. Still doesn't mean they know how to run a machine tool. No. (laughs) So how do you get them there? Well, for me, like the ultimate goal is for somebody to become a programmer. And that's what I hire everybody. Like on my website, it says we are hiring operators, we're hiring setup people. But really, at the end of the day, when they come in for the interview, it's like, would you like to be a CNC programmer? And they don't even think that that's a possibility when they walk in the door. And most often, the answer is yes. And when I have that as my answer, then it's like, where are you now in your career? And then if they're nowhere, it's like, first, I build from the top and the bottom kind of simultaneously, and I meet in the middle. So being able to to manipulate the three-dimensional solid file on a CAM program and also be able to interface with a a horizontal bandsaw, things like that. So safety on the bottom and technology on the top. When you meet in the middle, the two turn into a component that's been manufactured. So you're taking somebody and you're giving them the skills on the computer, but also showing them why. So you're starting on the computer with a new employee. Yeah, we start on the computer because what I found is if you start on a saw and the person doesn't know why plus 50 thousandths on this, not minus, then it's going to be a very, very expensive situation where you have material sizes that are all over the place and that matters. So if you show somebody the technology and you show them the saw, then you show them the why, then they quickly get it instead of like, I'm running a saw. So when you say start at the top and the bottom, you mean the top of technology and the crazy CAD CAM simulations, like higher end stuff, and then the bottom, like how the saw works and how you... Correct. Yeah. So nobody's ever run a saw and they're going to be manufacturing. At the end of the day, you want them to be able to go through cradle to grave or whatever you want to say there. Then they're going to need to know how to use both. But if you're showing the CAD CAM and you're showing the raw material and... They can quickly get the why the material has to be a certain size because you set it up in your cam system. And then if you show them what happens if you put too much material, a tool will break because you didn't know it was there, which will happen in a simulation. Then you quickly say you can connect those two versus what usually happens in manufacturing is somebody comes in with the broom and you can sweep the broom until you've bugged the guy with the saw and the saw guy is like, yeah, have at it. 
But if you don't know what the reason for plus or minus 50 on a cut is, then what's going on? Yeah, and that's exactly where I was going to... You start someone on the computer and they get to do the programming and stuff. And this is so backwards what you normally see. They fall in love because the programming's fun. It's sexy. Normally, in most companies or machine shops, it's hard to even get to where you get to program. Just like you, we started this whole thing off and you were talking about how you used to go upstairs and bug the guys that were in the programming room. And here you're like, hey, sit down and start programming, learn how to program, follow these tutorials. Because you stick a guy on a saw and or girl on a saw and that's their first thing. And they have to just sit there and cut saw cut stuff all day. Chances of them loving it. We got to train people so that they fall in love. That's right. Not so that they pay their dues. They don't want to pay their dues. There's a bunch of jobs that are going to be more engaging and more inspiring. When you bring somebody in, you got to get them to fall in love. And when they fall in love, they'll pay their dues because they love it. Not because they're thinking about how can I get out of here and get a different job. Yeah, this is miserable. This yeah. is all cutting. Yeah, yeah right. If you can work at a Amazon warehouse shoving things in a box for more money than you can working in a machine shop, sometimes you're thinking about where you start and not necessarily the ceiling. I think yeah. the ceiling in manufacturing is quite high. Absolutely. If you're given an opportunity to see that the path forward, it's a lot easier than being like, here's a broom. We don't know when you're going to move from the broom to a saw. And you see a saw is like, that's not much of a jump. We also have an automated bandsaw. We named him Jeff. So you set Jeff up <laughs> and you walk away. <laughs> my name is Jeff. My name is Jeff. I was never a programmer. Very unfair. Everybody else starts as a programmer, and I had to start as us all. <laughs> so back to the, like, let's talk automation. Like, give someone a view of how you're using the automated pallet delivery. Why did you choose automated pallet delivery instead of like moving parts in and out of the machine? Yeah, I looked at pick and place, and the issue with pick and place is that you have a pretty significant constraint. So you can start varying the part within the material. So if you had a one-inch part and you have your largest part at four inches, you can always put four-inch blocks and get your part out of that. But what I saw the for a system like a Trinity Automation, there's various ones out there, but having it as essentially a lunch tray, right? It's a cafeteria. You got a lunch tray. Whatever goes on that tray is whatever you want it to eat or what you want to eat. It's kind of irrelevant to the robot what's on top of the pallet. Right. The robot's going to move the pallets in and out of the machine and to various stations in the cabinet. Yeah. And that's what I saw was the benefit of that type of system is like, regardless of what was on that tray, as long as your programming was right, it was going to eat it. That's the reason why I went for that type of system. Because when you're doing such a vast majority of high mix, low volume or no volume, then if you have to pick in place and you're going to either be using a lot of material or you're going to be using a lot of time watching that robot sit still. So automation is based upon utilizing the best technology for your application. And that's a real good analogy because when you think of robot tending, it loves to do the same. Where you see it really excels, near net shape part doing the same thing all the time, like a near net shape die casting that's going to be machine, putting that same thing in, same thing in, same thing in. When people try to force the robotic tending into a high mix situation, they end up like putting a four inch block to cut a one inch part. So it's kind of like in the lunch tray analogy, getting a big old thing of mixed vegetables and then only eating the kernels of corn out of it. You no, know, you're just wasting. Yeah. That's not me. I eat everything on my plate. That's why <laughs> I look like I do. But my point. <laughs> no, no, that is a good point because it's like I'm equipped to grab this type of stock. The end product, we're whittling away at all the material and we're left with what we got. But with pallet delivery, it's the work holdings kind of infinite as long as it fits in the machining envelope. Right. And that's the big thing is in a high mix, low volume. It's about what's on the tray. 
And the variability in that means that's the standardization. But that's, again, the reason for that. I mean, I would do a pick-and-place type of system if I had high mix. So let's talk volume. about like the programming aspect. So you're creating these cross-trained employees that are both machinists and programmers. And then now you've got this automated pallet delivery system. You chose Trinity. How do you make all that match up so that it knows what to load and when to load it? And it's obviously quite a big mix because your average lot size is five. So so the, the system itself is pretty smart. I mean, it's you're assigning pallets programs. So you're matching the recipes, right? So it's essentially like if one of my employees is running a component and during the day, if they run a single unit on the back side of that, they're loading whatever the remaining balance those parts are into their cell and they're naming their pallets, whatever their program name is. So at the end of the day, the cycle start is about that. So it's about having the conversation for the programmer of like where there's variability is each programmer has a different offset number for a second operation. So if we're palletizing op one and op two or op zero and op two or whatever you want to call it, we have different assigned secondary setups. So your primary setup number never changes. Your secondary does and that variable is determined by that programmer. So if you've got both systems going, you may have five or six offsets being used, but that's determined by the programmer and that's determined by their offset number. So with that assignment, it's still standard. So the training really has to happen is like, here's your number, you would choose whatever you want for a name. We do have standardized naming because everything is... Yeah, you have to have some sort of naming convention, yeah. yeah. But it's all about creating those systems that become the way everybody in the shop works and works well together. So you're not super focused on a specific process that everybody has to follow, but you are very passionate about systems. Correct. So in in a way that triggers how the process happens. Gotcha. Yeah. See, I love that. Yeah. So the process is kind of secondary, like people following a system. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Okay. So obviously you've created a culture where people can be creative. You've created a culture where people get trained quickly and develop rapidly. And then you took a job as a high school teacher? I took a job as a high school teacher because my local technical high school, their instructor moved on at the end of last year. And when it came time for school to start, they didn't have an instructor yet. So I was cold called. They asked me if I would do it. One of the things that I speak a lot about is educating the next people in manufacturing. And I figured this was a situation where if I complain and I don't do anything, then I'm just another complainer. So I took it on myself to go and become a teacher, which is no easy feat. Took on a program that had gotten some newer technology, but the newest manufacturing technology was X and Y driven bridge ports, which in modern day world is not very advanced. So I teach welding and manufacturing and also the design process in between the two. Wow. And Didn't you have enough going on? <laughs> I do have enough going on. But again, it goes back to the passion and sharing that passion. And in a sense, it was my thought of who's going to teach these kids if I don't teach these kids. Yeah. And if I'm thinking about what I think would be very helpful in the manufacturing world is like having somebody who wants to teach them the technology. So when they're watching YouTube or TikTok or whatever they're watching, they know that they've done that instead of being in a classroom full of bridge parts and saying, I've never seen this on TikTok. What am I doing here? Yeah. If you give a kid access to technology and you teach them how to use it properly, they're going to want to use it more. If you show somebody technology and tell them that this is the best we got, they get distracted and distracted kids are not usually constructive kids. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Hey, thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you for doing what you do. 
you brought it up before I could even say it, but everyone's complaining about the skills gap. Like how many organizations or individuals, better yet, how many people are actually doing something about it? And you are. And so congrats on the company you've built. It's like the case example for automation and how automation doesn't have to mean high volume. And then congrats and thank you for doing what you're doing with the schools. Thank you. I appreciate the time on the show. And Steve, thanks for jumping in. I love working with you. I love having you on the show right now. And Yeah, you know what? I haven't jumped since 1987, <laughs> but I was glad to jump in on this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, every once in a while, there's somebody you meet and you talk to them and you get into a deeper conversation and then you're like, gosh, I wish I was recording. For like, if you have a podcast, you know the feeling. And when we visited you, the whole time I was like, why aren't we filming this? Why aren't we recording? Like, this is what everybody needs to hear. And so I'm super glad that we got to do this. So thanks again. And then also, please help us squash the status quo. When you hear people say things, oh, I don't have the volume for automation, or I can't automate because of this, or whatever it is, share this episode with them. Please do. And I think that I'm actually a machinist and a business owner who is somebody that I am more than happy to answer questions because I know that for a fact, I can't machine it all. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And he's super engaged. Like he's got a really popular Instagram and you have your own blog on your website. That's really good. When people reach out to you, you respond. We end the show the same way every time. It's kind of a, what's the word? Cliche is probably not the right word, but it's a sign off that you hear in machine shops all the time. And it goes something like this. If you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Bam.